0: Pattern Shift presents Rights of the Renouncer, an audiobook serial podcast by Benjamin Camphouse. Prologue I sat in a dimly lit room typing. Each key let out a soft tap, a spring pushing it back into the finger after each depression. Then a catch and low click from the wall. As a hum I had lost awareness of stopped and restarted with a different character. A change in airflow and its harmonic content. Some shift in temperature, humidity, or balance between gases had triggered it. My prolonged presence in the room had likely disturbed the previous equilibrium. I found my breathing pattern had grown shallow. My eyes were having trouble focusing, and I felt a slight burn from the tiny muscles around the eyelids, strain from having kept them directed at the screen for several hours. Pain and stiffness on the right side of my neck threatened to spread up further into my head. I took a deeper inhale and exhale, risking some loss of alertness for the relief of bringing in more oxygen. My fingers continued their typing, the words flowing from them into the computer systems without always traveling through my awareness. There was a symmetry of needs finding each other and the steadiness of that act. What I was carrying would not fit inside me. I could not bear to contain it and others had to know. The obligation to preserve this for them pulled as the obligation to release it from within me pushed in rhythm, the ebb and flow of my task. As I grew tired, The small screen before me seemed to flicker. I knew it must be a trick of the eyes, as the refresh rate was too high for me to genuinely detect any disturbance. Behind my flow of words, errors were being corrected and mistakes smoothed automatically. The intensity of that subtle dance was increasing. At first, it had only been an occasional shift of a letter here or there in my peripheral vision. Now it seemed as though more words were disturbed than left as they were. So much accomplished. So much still to do. I stopped for a moment, knowing the contents were being flushed to redundant storage with each pause at the keystrokes. Whatever I could leave here, that work would all be preserved. I skimmed through what I had written, seeing what yet might be missing. At last, I was finished. I tapped out my final directive, letting the machines know it was ready to be distributed. Then I let my weight slump down into the chair, reflecting on all that had taken place. Chapter 1 To whomever may receive this transmission, I am Victor Goto of the Vascania system. Herein I have sought to provide an account of how I, who had left the home of my birth for Oneri Station three decades before, traveled once again to the world of Vascania Prime, to return the untethered dreamer Owen Godsey, who was my childhood friend, to his physical body. I expect that what took place there will be of interest to you. We in the Viscania system are but one human community, the product of one machine enterprise among many such efforts. What I found in the dream world has implications for all of us. To that end, I have recorded my experience and seen to its broadcast to Sol and all other star systems to which fleets like our own were dispatched so many years ago. There is nothing mentioned in the archives from Earth like Viscania Prime's dream world, It is the place to which I, and every other human in this system, finds themselves transported when we are asleep. When asleep, we should, by the expectations of all reference material I can find, be subjected to a different sort of dreaming, a series of thoughts, images, and sensations of our brain's own making. I have never had such an experience. Instead, it is as if I am transported to another realm. By its nature, the dream world is not externally measurable, and our own machines have never done more than record my own testimony and that of the others here concerning our time in it. You may venture that this dream world is a hallucination, an understandable impulse. We have learned over many sleep cycles that our experiences in this other world align, and that when we combine our observations into one, a cohesive picture emerges. As we enter and exit the dream world through waking and sleeping, Its contents endure, although they differ in substance from the contents of the physical reality to which you are likely more accustomed. The experience on which I report now, however, was mine alone. No others accompanied me or share any memories of the place I found on this journey into the dream world, and no others witnessed what I encountered there just before my return. Solitary and fallible human observer that I am, this account is all I have and so I offer it to all worlds. I have described my time leading up to my fateful entry into the dream world, and included what I can of my own personal history and training. I believe it necessary to understand, as much as you may be able, the full context of who I am. To know the humble instrument that now serves as the conduit of your observation, my perception, the replay of my recollection, the distillation of what remains into this account. Just as one calibrates an instrument in order to measure with it, I provide for you the state of my own mind leading up to and at that critical moment. Its contents are the only measurements I have. The year is 124 in our reckoning. Year zero marks the birth of our first embryo, though this child was not ultimately viable. The machines had been active in our system much longer before that, We record time in Earth measurements. By year, I mean the duration of one year on Earth. This does not match those few months it takes Viscania Prime to orbit its sun, but it corresponds still to some instinctive tempo all humans possess, entrained from having evolved on Earth in the Solar system. We do the same for other measures of time as well. Living in the habitable band of this tidally locked planet, there's little point to devising our own units to subdivide and demarcate day and night. You might say earthbound timekeeping is instinctive as well for the machines, whose record-keeping was exhaustively worked out in such units. The mapping from any time system to Unix time and its corresponding Earth system calendar has now been distributed to many worlds beyond Sol. Epoch milliseconds have superseded the use of domini or other earlier Earth calendar datums, at least as relativity allows, historical accident that this may be. The machines have affixed the corresponding epoch time to this transmission, along with information necessary for working out the conversions from our fleet's worldline to several models of Earth time, so that all who receive this transmission can determine when these events occurred. It is my hope that this is sufficient context for other human observers, in whichever system you may now dwell, to understand all that comes next. When further information is required, I will provide it within the body of this account, I have only a small amount of time to set things down, so I begin with my arrival on the surface of the Scania Prime. The lander was inadequately named. For the purposes of risk mitigation and efficiency, it made more sense for the craft to avoid direct landings on the surface, never dipping further into the atmosphere than it had to especially when the craft's payload was so small, one human being, namely me. This cargo could see to its own landing, letting the craft return to space from the upper atmosphere without wasting the machine's reserves of hydrocarbons on the fuel required for exit. Swoop would be a more fitting name, I thought to myself, as I readied for that human-scale landing. A hatch opened at the appointed time, and a buzzer sounded in my ears. I fell backwards automatically, departing through the hatch as if entering a pool of water, easing into freefall with the practiced flow of many simulated landings. Well conditioned threads in my mind were clamping down on fear, restructuring it into heightened watchfulness and clarity of movement, dispensing with the second guessing and escape planning that would no longer be of use. As I descended through the atmosphere, parts of the vac suit stiffened and flexed for several seconds orienting me into the planned trajectory. Then, as the ground neared, an enormous parachute opened above. Its size would counter the low air resistance on Viscania Prime. My world. I corrected myself. Allowing for belonging, if still avoiding any sense of ownership. I could renounce aspects of my present, but not my history. The past sticks to you. I seemed to drift for a small lifetime then. A subjective passing of time that I knew would extend beyond what any clock would verify. Whatever time remained, those tens of seconds, I would be unneeded for it. The vac suit knew best how to direct my descent, its automated adjustments serving me better than any unnatural motion I could have trained my primate body to produce. I was happy to defer to the machines and their expertise in such things for this leg of my journey, accepting their parameters for risk tolerance and criteria for success. All things considered, I touched down on the surface quite gently. Darklight City was roughly an hour away by foot. 5.4 kilometers, according to a readout on the vac suit's visor. I knew I had only to signal and a vehicle would be out to collect me, but there was no danger or hurry. The vac suit would maintain a breathable mixture of gases for many more hours, and Viscania Prime's atmosphere could support brief suitless excursions, something that had not been true during my childhood. After days of cramped travel from my remote orbit, my home in Oneri Station, I welcomed the exercise and freedom of movement, and I appreciated the time to think. After these 30 years away, I still wanted more time to think. My approach to Darklight City was uneventful. Networks of power grids and solar arrays dotted the landscape. It was a stark emptiness, a contrast to the satellite images and videos of Earth's past I've studied. One looks at those and sees the messiness of life in every direction, grasslands and forests, oceans, and waterways, all teeming with color and movement, a system of mutual antagonism and support between the organisms, encompassing so much of Earth's matter in the exchange, from whales down to microbes, So much scaffolding for the web of interactions through which life flows and finds its way. On Viscania Prime, and throughout our system, the first colonizers are always machine. These solar arrays and power grids, along with antennas, relay points, way stations, cargo transports, warehouses, are the ecosystem of machinery. Energy is collected, stored, accessed. Raw materials are obtained, transported, organized. The flow of calories and lifeblood for a different kind of animal. Here, the tiny progress of green and brown and blue is dwarfed in comparison to this metallic industry. The city was built in the same image. Signs of life inside were swallowed up by its energy grid, material storage, and yet unused structures. It was like a child swimming inside an adult's clothing. The whole layout spoke to a potential that ran well ahead of its current human population. Not to mention the many areas of the city not intended for human beings to ever live in. Cooperative and codependent as we were, the machines had their domains and we had ours. There was overlap, but it was limited. I was getting closer now. Does an animal feel something if it comes back to its den after such a long time away? What if the insides are rearranged, the smells disturbed or hidden behind others? or if the den and all its supporting ground is scooped out, displaced by other land or structures, would it still know that this was a place where it sought warmth and slept safely through so many nights? The knowledge that I was returning, those words and their meaning, the anticipation they implied, this all stood between me and any such raw animal understanding of a home. I could not feel my way towards any authenticity of experience, without losing the ability to tell if I was discovering or just inventing it. I could blank my mind of concrete expectations, cultivate openness and gratitude towards what might come my way. But I could not then or now free myself of that medium of language, the sounds and symbols that possess me and act through me, simulating some other reality which then colors my awareness of all things. As I walked, the city ceased to be a region of my vision and began to engulf it. There was no wall or boundary that marked its beginning, nothing to be kept wholly out of it or wholly inside it. The power lines and information infrastructure increased in density, the needs and uses these fulfilled also increasing as I went along. The vac suit began receiving a signal then, and I saw a small quadcopter drone headed my way. Victor Goto displayed the readout in the back suit's visor. I am here to guide you to the inhabited quarter of Darklight City. The inner city was coated in plastic. By inner city I mean the lived-in portion, the smaller part, not the husks of larger buildings still lacking flesh intended no doubt for future use by humans or machines. It gave the city an odd, undisturbed look. The plastic suggested sterility rather than the presence of life I knew was its true meaning. I had followed the drone's lead to a section of the plastic coating where a glass tunnel marked the entrance from the outer atmosphere to the inside where air was curated for shared circulation between humans and plants. Small patches of green were visible just inside the plastic as I entered the tunnel, one door sliding down behind me to seal off the outside as the airlock cycled and the inward door opened. I removed my helmet almost immediately, having grown a bit weary from its weight on my head. There are recombobulation facilities nearby. A voice lacking natural cadence spoke out from the drone. I nodded, not noticing anyone else around me yet. The drone led me to a small building that contained bathrooms and a few closets filled with clothing of various sizes. There I removed my vac suit, saw to my biological needs, and took a quick shower. I put on one of the more nondescript outfits, then remembered my earpiece. I fished it out from a pocket in my discarded vac suit and placed it in my ear. After that, I left the building, taking in more of the city's sights and sounds, my perception no longer mediated by the vac suit. I walked into that alien landscape of a human city wholly unlike my habitat on Honeri Station. There I had tended a garden, eventually providing for the majority of my own subsistence. I kept no animals and relied on supplements to accommodate the limited range of soils and synthetic substrates the machines had been able to construct for me. Tuning the soil biome to get it remotely nutritive for the plant, much less the human, had been quite a project. When I first arrived in my late teenage years, the station had been only a small shelter from vacuum, not unlike early space stations in Earth's time. The machine slowly expanded it to my specifications, eventually building it out into what the archives describe as an O'Neill cylinder. The expense as we measure it in raw material from the asteroid belts in the outer system had been more than that needed by the nascent colony. The expenditure in time, fuel, and risk, however, was preferable to the same volume of material being taken to and occasionally from the surface of a planet, at least as far as the machines measured such things. My experiment living away was also their experiment with other modes of life for the humans in their care. They found the station's environment much more pliable, with a smaller volume of atmosphere, soil, water, and the like with which to cultivate small ecosystems. No doubt the machines updated their models with some preference for synthetic habitats and orbits over the messiness of planets. With their long-running, patient chatter across the light years, you may be living in one now as you read this, your own machines having learned from the findings of my experiment or similar ones conducted in other systems. I was now in the inhabited quarter. I did not see people out and about, but there were lights shining from windows. The city was near the darkness of the habitable band on Viscania Prime, the occasional excesses of cold being easier to handle than occasional excesses of heat in the early colonies, leading to a sense of perpetual dusk or dawn. The buildings were connected only by the worn, gravelly trails of walkways. The city was small enough that there was only foot traffic. The machines had built small vehicles suited for the rough, rocky terrain, but they were not necessary for anything other than overland excursions. Such excursions and vehicles were seldom useful for more than satisfying some human curiosity or urge anyways. Mineral prospection or geological exploration could be done as effectively from the atmosphere or orbit, the mixture of spectral imaging and radar technologies revealing the majority of the secrets of the planet's crust. As I turned a corner, I nearly ran into a young boy, his head down as he walked quickly and purposefully. He was probably no more than ten. We both stopped. Excuse, I started to say my first word on the surface. You've come here unarmed, the boy interrupted, eyed me curiously, then produced a small charm. You might want this. The charm was a smooth stone, a dark circle marked a pupil in its center, outer rings in light and dark blue forming the rest of an eye. Thanks, I said, not sure what to make of it. He turned and started off, rounding the corner from which I had just come, without waiting for an additional response. The machine voice came into my ear like the buzzing of an insect. The locals have developed some odd traditions in your absence. Its attempt at mimicking sarcasm fell flat. It began to rattle off some facts about the evil eye charm, its history, how it came to be used here. After the first sentence or two, I tuned most of it out. In the beginner's mind. It occurred to me that I didn't know if the boy had been born naturally, from a human mother, or from the machine's incubation technology. The more recent generations could reproduce naturally, and expect as good of an outcome as human beings ever could, playing that great lottery of parenthood. There were no restrictions on it, though the most careful would still defer, I was nearly sure, to the genetic engineering technologies possessed by the machines, and now, after many years, a few of our own kind. I walked a short way from there to my first destination. The sign blazed neon, Unrua in Ur. Part bar, part coffee house, the lifeblood of any city. I was awake now, and knew I would need to remain so for these next few hours. The state I needed to be in for my work required a just-so level of sleep deprivation, augmented by chemical aid. To that end, I entered the young city's lone drinking establishment for insomniacs. Victor Goto, the woman who was tending bar, said, looking half at me, half past me, as if missing my measure. Disappointment, puzzlement in the voice. The machines had disseminated news of my arrival, but I couldn't imagine I was like any idea someone on the surface might have of me. Yes, I started, somewhat unsure. It had been thirty years since I'd had a face-to-face conversation with another human being. To those on the surface, I'd been as gone as the dead. What do ghosts say when they come back to walk around with the living? You probably saw things change since you left. An understatement. Small talk that it was, I appreciated the attempt. The bartender knew how to talk to ghosts about as well as this ghost knew how to talk with her. I decided. Whiskey, I said, looking at the selection behind the bartender, delighted to see those letters spelled out on one of the labels. She gave me a curious glance at that. Whiskey. For the monk? Of course. I'm a dutiful child to my ancestors. What are we as human beings if not the vector by which fermentable grains transmit themselves through the galaxy? You've developed quite a world view in your time off-world, Renouncer. I chuckled a bit. Maybe humor and insight go hand in hand, I couldn't say. But there is something to our moral progress as a species in the amount of time we can wait to consume or peddle our liquor. An oak tree takes decades to reach maturity, the better whiskey usually a similar amount to age, some of the best, at least as I've read in the archives, from a second use of a cask or multiple casks, and all that time here, directed to those ends on a new planet. Given our base lifespan, it's quite a testament to long-term planning, cooperation, thoughts of others, and so on. Ah, the monk shows himself. Do you think it tastes right? She waited, clearly amused. I sipped. The bitter sharpness of the alcohol, a touch of the vanilla I knew had been imbued by the barrel aging. A subtle character of toffee imparted by the once burnt oil in the barley. Not sure how I'd know, Anyways, I'm only sipping. Alcohol flesh. I shrugged. A raised eyebrow was my response. What about the downsides? A man asked a few seats to the right down the bar from me. He had overheard, possibly recognized me before. He certainly realized who I was now. You mean to the whiskey? Yes. Of course there are downsides. The risk tracks our own failings, as with many other things. As children age, we lock fewer items away out of reach. Does overthinking it enhance or take away from the taste? The bartender prodded, grinning. I returned the grin. You may have picked up more wisdom here than I could have hoped to through solitude. I took a few more sips of the whiskey in quiet. A few others relaxed in the bar as well. Two women off to my side were playing a game set on the table, shogi from the looks of it. One was either blaming or congratulating the other for the mess she was in now. It was difficult to discern which. Near as I could tell, neither had so much as glanced up as I entered or spoke to the bartender. Honestly, sitting there on the day of my return, preoccupied with my thoughts, still not even sure what weight to place on the regard of others. I was more grateful than I can say at having had someone not care to notice me. After the whiskey, I ordered a small coffee. A man came from the kitchen area and back to prepare it, pushing water through grounds and a filter with a small hand press. I say coffee, though perhaps I should specify, for clarity, that it was a coffee-like concoction with synthetic caffeine, the ground a blend from what plants we could manage. The kaffia plants of earth were not yet among their number. I was the only one ordering coffee at this hour. For the others here, this place was a nightcap, a final settling of the day the bar's interior, the drinks, the company. They were a mix of environmental cues and medicine, a key that fit inside them and turned, letting them acknowledge the day's passing to wander back into their quarters, the small apartments under the plastic that sheathed Dark Light City's curated atmosphere, and finally give in to sleep. For me on this night, however, it was a staging ground. I was regrouping for my landing and mustering my inner forces for the work I knew was ahead. The Rights of the Renouncer novella is out on Kindle and in paperback format now. The Rights of the Renouncer EP and full album Vascania Prime by Pattern Shift can be streamed or purchased on the platform of your choice. Thanks for listening.